Good morning. Great to see you guys again here at Center. Um, my name's Brian, if I haven't had a chance to meet you. I'm actually the pastor of Frontline Church, which as Brendan just mentioned a second ago, we are sister churches. There's three of us, uh, churches together that are in the, what's called the Zero Collective. And so every once in a while, I get to come and, and be in, with you guys. And so we've been hearing and we've been celebrating with you the baptisms that have happened over this last month and 24 kids coming to the lock-in. That's awesome. And uh, we just celebrate with you guys, all that God's doing here. And today I get to be with you to start a new series. And so today we're beginning a brand new series and it's called My Blank Family. Now we left the blank there on purpose because we figured you would fill it in in your own head. So for some of you right now, you're like, yeah, my awesome family, my incredible family, my blessed family. Others of you are filling in the blank with words that you are not allowed to say in church. And that's okay. That's completely all right. Uh, we come at this from all different angles. And so why talk about families? Because uh, families can be kind of a touchy subject, especially this time of year as we think about, you know, the holidays coming and, and times where we're going to see our families. And what's interesting is when you look at the Bible, and we're going to be looking for the next three weeks at uh, the book of Genesis, and we're going to be looking at a few different families in the book of Genesis. And what the Bible does is it, it, the Bible doesn't give us pictures of ideal families that we're supposed to emulate. When you read the Bible, in fact, when people say, yeah, I'm trying to have a biblical family, it's like, have you read the Bible? Have you read the, about the families? We're not supposed to really emulate the families that we find in the Bible. What's interesting about the Bible is it's actually full of failure stories, stories of families that weren't ideal. And the reason for that is because those families are supposed to point toward something or someone greater. And so what we're really talking about with this series is what does it mean to have Christ at the center of your family? What does it mean to actually allow Jesus to be the center of your family and to, to work as a family to follow Jesus? Um, and that's, that applies to us whether we're single, whether we're married, whether we're divorced, whether we're parents, whether we're grandparents, whatever the case, we can all uh, choose to be Christ-centered in our families. And so that's what we're going to be looking at and discussing today. Uh, my family and I are members of the John Ball Zoo, and I say that proudly. Uh, we are very proud members of the John Ball Zoo. Uh, we love the zoo. And a few years ago, uh, the tigers came, right? Remember the tiger exhibit when it first came? How many of you went to see the tigers of the John Ball Zoo? Okay, most of us here in this room. Okay, so we got like this members invite invitation only the week that the tiger exhibit came out and we were so pumped. And so that first week that it came out, I took my four boys by myself. My wife uh, was away with some friends and I took my four boys and I took them to the John Ball Zoo to see the tigers and we were pumped. And if you've been there, you know the way it works is uh, you go up to the exhibit, there's this long hill that you have to walk all the way up to see the tigers. It's like a boardwalk. You know what I'm talking about if you've been there. And so at the bottom of the hill, my boys and I, we go, and there's pictures of tigers. And the signs say, this way to see the tigers. And so we start the walk and we're walking. I'm dragging my four boys all the way up this giant boardwalk. To, uh, you know, walking uphill to see the tigers. And along every turn, it's, there's another picture. This way to the tigers. You're going to get to see tigers. Tigers are at the top of this hill. So we get all the way to the top of the hill. We get to the tiger exhibit. We walk over to the big picture windows that are right there with such excitement. The tiger exhibit was awesome, except for one problem. There were no tigers. <laughs> and we're literally like, like looking through the windows like this. All my boys are just like pressed up against the glass 
No tigers. So we walk around the side to where you can kind of see more of the, the exhibit. And there's this sign that's been posted right there. And I actually took a picture of the sign and I, I'll read you. This is exactly what the sign said. It said, we, apparently the zoo, we are letting the tigers adjust to their new habitat. So we are letting them choose when to come out and be on display. Isn't that nice? And so I look, and at the back of the exhibit, there's like this building. And apparently all the tigers were not feeling it that day. And so instead of being out where we could see them, they're all, at the back, they're all in that building, and they're not coming out to be on display for anyone to see. And as I looked at that sign, I thought to myself, couldn't you have put that sign at the bottom of the hill? Like, couldn't you have shared that information that maybe the tigers were not going to come out and be on display at the, before I drug my kids all the way up this hill with the expectation that they're going to get to see some tigers? Would, wouldn't that be a better way to do this? Because now that we're at the top of the hill and they've been waiting with all this expectation and invested themselves climbing this hill to see these tigers, now there's a temper tantrum. There's crying. There's freaking out. There's screaming. And then they told me to calm down and stop making a scene. <laughs> Apparently, I was embarrassing them. So uh, the reason I tell you that story is because it's not hard to give up a dream at the bottom of the hill, is it? It's, it's not hard to give up on an expectation that you have or a dream that you have for your life or your family, whatever it is, before you've invested yourself and poured yourself in. But when you have climbed the hill with the expectation that it's gonna be this way. By this time in life, by this point in my family, it's gonna be like this, and then it's not. That's where the problems are. As we think about families, when you have invested yourself in the marriage, and you've gone to counseling, you've put the time in, you've put the money in, you've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed, and then the other person decides, yeah, I'm gonna file for divorce, I'm done. If you have wanted to be pregnant, wanted to have a child, and all your friends are posting like their second pregnancy announcement on Facebook, and everybody's getting excited, and you've gone to the doctor, you've paid for the procedure, you've gone through it, you've invested yourself, and still, it's not happened for you. No baby, no baby announcement yet for you. Or maybe, if you're more of the stage of life I'm in, maybe you've prayed and you've invested in that kid and you've given them every good opportunity, you've given them every chance to succeed and they choose the drugs or the toxic relationship or, or maybe just the path of laziness instead. I mean, these are the moments, aren't they, that really just pull at the fabric of who we are as families. And so the question I want to ask you as we're starting this series is this question uh, right here. You can go ahead to that next slide. The question is, what do you do when your expectations don't match your reality? I'm, I'm talking specifically about your family. What do you do when your expectations do not match your reality? When you've climbed the hill, you've invested yourself, and you thought, by this point, this is where we're going to be. I'm going to get married. This is what it's going to be like when I get married. And now you're in the marriage, or now you've had the child, or whatever it is. What do you do when your expectations don't match your reality? Because here's the thing, any family that stays together over any period of time will face these moments. 
some moment well, you will face, if you're a part of a family that will stay together for any amount of time, you will face a moment where your expectations don't match your reality. What do you do in those moments? Because for many of us, these are the moments where we become divided. These are the moments where our relationships get pulled apart. And if we're really honest, from a spiritual standpoint, these are the moments where we experience deep disappointment in God. Like, God, how could you do this? How could you do this? I, I, you know, I prayed, I planned, I did all the right things, and yet the formula didn't work for me. It's not working out the way I expected it to. The reason we're looking at that is because that's exactly Abraham and Sarah's story. At the point in the story where we're going to intersect and, and study them, they're actually, their names are Abram and Sarai. God later changes their names to Abraham and Sarah. But Abraham and Sarah knew what it felt like to have expectations, to climb the hill, expecting something, and then for those expectations to not become reality. Their story in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15, both places, God gives Abraham, Abram, and Sarai three promises. And the three promises are for land. He says, leave your home and your, your father's country. They lived in the land of Ur. And he said, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you seed in, in terms of like a legacy, a line of people. At that time, they were childless. And the third promise is he said, I'm going to allow your family to bless all the other families, to be a blessing to all the other families of the world. And here's the thing. God ultimately did fulfill all those promises to Abram and Sarai. Uh, the one for land, the promise for land was fulfilled in the time of Joshua later on. Uh, the promise for seed was ultimately fulfilled in the nation of Israel and the line of King David. And the promise that their family would ultimately be a blessing to all the families in the world was fulfilled ultimately through Jesus and the gospel. But here's the problem. None of those things were fully realized in their immediate lifetime. I mean, in part, they, they got the land in part. They got the seed in part, ultimately through their son Isaac, finally. And they got the blessing in part, but, but actually it was... It was their descendants much further down the line that actually got to realize the full impact of those blessings. They never actually got to see it in their lifetime. And that's where we intersect their story. That, that's where we find them. And here's where we find how God wants to, to interact and lead our families. What we see is that oftentimes we want God to just give us a map. God says to Abram and Sarai, he says, leave your father's country, leave the land of Ur, and just trust me and follow me. A lot of times what we want in life is we want the map. We want the sign that says the tigers are up here at the top of the hill. And what God often actually does is he offers to be our guide. If you want to go ahead to that, that next slide there, God doesn't give us a map for our family. That's actually not the way God leads your family. It's not the way he leads any of our families. He doesn't give us a map. With a map, you can chart your own course, right? With a map, you can say, okay, I'm here. By this time, I want to be here, and so here's the course I'm going to take. What God actually offers is to be our guide, step by step, day by day, to be the one who leads us, to be the one who leads our family on a day-to-day -day basis. And in that scenario, you have to follow. And that's a picture of the spiritual life that we see in the story of Abram and Sarai. It's a picture of what it means to let Jesus actually be our guide for our family and, and to, to actually allow him to lead us. And that's what he does for Abraham and Sarah. He actually invites them to leave, to be their guide. And just so you know, when, when Abraham and Sarah leave Ur, the land they're from, uh, Abraham is 70 years old. 
and uh, Sarai is actually right around 60. So they are, let's say, retirement age. And so this is not what you plan to do at retirement, right? I was just talking to Kevin about, you know, plans and retirement and stuff uh, right before the service started. At this stage of their lives, they don't have any children. And God says, I'm going to give you a child, but you have to leave and you have to follow me day to day on this giant journey and you don't know where you're going. It doesn't seem like the right time of life, does it, for them to be doing this? But that's exactly what they do. But the problem is the biological clock is ticking and it hasn't happened yet and it hasn't happened yet. And now years have passed And that's where we find them. This is Genesis 16, verse 1. Those promises God had made, they're still on the journey. There's still no baby. They don't see it happening. Verse 1, it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, The Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. And Abram agreed with Sarai's proposal. So Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abraham as a wife. This happened 10 years after Abram had settled in the land of Canaan. So Abram had sexual relations with Hagar, and she became pregnant. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress, Sarai, with contempt. Then Sarai said to Abram, this is all your fault. Somehow this is your fault. I put my servant into your arms like you do when you're a wife. Do you see now why we're not supposed to emulate these families in the, in the Bible? I put my servant into your arms so you could have sex with her. But now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show who's wrong, you or me. Abram replied, look, she is your servant, so deal with her as you see fit. Then Sarai treated Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. So you see in this moment, there's all this division happening. There's all this brokenness And it's because what's really happening here in this moment is God has offered to be a guide for Abraham and Sarah, but what they've chosen instead is to take their own shortcut. I I want a map. I just want to figure it. I want to chart my own course. I'm going to figure out a shortcut because God, you're taking too long. By the way, this was a common practice in the ancient Near East. Especially for a a woman who was wealthy, it was not uncommon if a woman who was wealthy was barren, could not have children. It was so important to have children That was where a lot of your value came from as a woman, that it was not uncommon if you had a servant that you would try to have children through that servant. That was a way you could preserve the line and actually have children was through a servant because it was viewed as like she was your property. And so this is what she's doing. But what you have to understand is that wasn't God's way, right? (laughs) That wasn't God's plan. That wasn't the way he wanted to do it. What they were doing is they were looking at the culture, they were looking at the world and going, how can I take a shortcut and get this done? So that, I mean, God promised it. I just, I just have to help God out a little bit. I just have to take this shortcut and help God out. And go ahead to the next slide. This is the temptation that we, we face at these moments. When we find these moments where our expectations don't match our reality, well, oftentimes what we do is we take shortcuts. Now, shortcuts for us today look different. Maybe the shortcut you're tempted with is to compromise your family's values. It's to cheat. It's to have an affair. It's to take a shortcut by just leaving and going and finding a new spouse. I'll just, I'll just start over again. Or maybe it's as simple as that there's a family member and they're not doing what you want them to do. And so you go into force mode. I'm going to control them. I'm going to forcefully just make them do what I want them to do. 
And when we make these moves, it's not God's way. If God is taking his time and fulfilling his promises to you and your family, a shortcut is the worst thing you can do. Taking matters into your own hands and taking a shortcut will create divisions. Oftentimes, those divisions will last for generations. The shortcuts we take in our families create a divided family that will impact our lives for generations. And that's exactly what you see in the story of Abraham and Sarah. So Hagar's pregnant, and she and Sarai have this division. They have this fight, and Hagar goes her own way, and Abraham's torn because she's pregnant with his child. And so eventually Hagar has a child, and his name is Ishmael. And you may not know this, but um, Islam, uh, Muslims trace their ancestry back to Ishmael. And so they believe they are descendants of the same promises that were made to Abraham through the person of Ishmael. And so if you've ever wondered why, even to this day, there's been so much fighting between these two people groups in the Middle East, uh, Jewish people and, and people of Islam, it goes back to this story. It goes back to this division in this family. We are still today feeling the impact of the division that happened between these these two, this family and these two groups of people that are still figuring this out. And it's the same for us. Many of you, maybe the divisions didn't start with you. Well, maybe it wasn't some shortcut you took personally. Maybe you've been handed a, a shortcut, a division that happened upstream in your life. Maybe it was a couple generations before you, but you are still dealing with the impact. You're, div- you're dealing with the divisions in your family the impact of those shortcuts that were taken and and the painful brokenness that's a part of your family now. We see this, right? I mean, if you go to the doctor and you have a problem, the first thing the doctor, one of the first things the doctor is gonna do to diagnose you is he's gonna ask about what? Your family history, right? It's like, what did mom have? What did dad have? What are the diseases that run in your family? The reason for that is because we recognize we are not just managing our own personal health issues, We are managing oftentimes our family history, what was handed to us from generations before. That's true physically, it's also true emotionally, and it's also true spiritually. Some of you are dealing with things and issues that have been handed to you. It's not your fault, it didn't start with you, but it's still impacting your life, your family on a day-to-day basis. At Thanksgiving dinner at the end of this month, you will feel it in the room. Even though it had nothing to do with you, it happened upstream. Here's the thing, you can't go back and fix it. Once a shortcut's been taken, once division has happened, you can't go back and and fix it. What you can do, no matter what position you find yourself in your family, what you can do is you can decide today to move forward and let Christ be your guide from here on out. You can allow God to write a new legacy in your family history. And here's the thing, you may not see it all in your lifetime. You may not see God bring unity and God heal and God bring, uh, you know, fullness and, and wholeness and, he, and health to that brokenness and that wounded episode in your family history. You may not see it in your lifetime. Abraham and Sarah did not get to see it in their lifetime. But what you can do is you can be a pioneer for a Christ-centered family. You can be a pioneer for something your family won't have, and maybe it'll be a tree that you plant and a tree that you water that your grandchildren will someday sit underneath the shade of and eat the fruit of. You can, every one of us can do that. Single, divorced, married, parent, grandparent, kid. 
child, we can all decide today how we're going to move forward. And so how does Abraham and Sarah move forward? What happens is if you go to the next chapter of the Bible, God appears again to, to Abraham. He cha- this is the moment where he changes a- Abram's name to Abraham and Sarai's name to Sarah. God appears to them again, and it's this moment of brokenness. Abraham falls face down before God, and he falls in repentance and brokenness, and he, he confesses, he recognizes, man, this shortcut we took, this whole thing with Hagar, it's, it's a mess, and it's created this mess. And by at this point, Abraham is 99 years old. Remember, he was around 70 when he left Ur. Uh, Sarai was around 60. Now he's 99, and Sarai, Sarah is around 90 years old. Verse 17, Genesis 17 says this, then Abraham bowed down to the ground, but he laughed to himself in disbelief because God is, God is reaffirming his promises. Even in this moment of brokenness and repentance, God is, re- is reaffirming his promises. Abraham laughs to himself in disbelief and he says, how could I become a father at the age of 100? God, how are you going to allow that to happen? Like biologically, that doesn't make any sense at all. He thought, and how can Sarah have a baby when she is 90 years old? So Abraham said to God, here, here's Abraham's plan. Listen to this. He says to God, may Ishmael live under your special blessing. <laughs> right? So God, can you just bless my shortcut? I get it. I messed up. And, but you're, you're still affirming this promise. You're saying your way. I've got to trust you and let you be my guide. Can you just sort of, can you just make Ishmael the one of your promise? Can, can you just bless the shortcut I took and, and fix it that way? But God replied, no, Sarah, your wife will give birth to a son for you. You will name him Isaac and I will confirm my covenant with him and his descendants as an everlasting covenant. And here's the thing we know, the everlasting covenant that God had planned for Isaac, the son from Abraham and Sarah when they were 190, we know that everlasting covenant today is the gospel salvation that came through Jesus. See, God couldn't just bless their shortcut because he had something greater in mind. If if you're in a place in life and man, it just doesn't make sense. God wants to be our guide. He doesn't offer to give us a roadmap and we just kind of chart our own course because he has something planned that's bigger. Oftentimes it's things we can't see in the moment we're in. And he says, I want you to trust me. I want you to have faith in me because I'm doing something bigger. God was trying to do much bigger than just Abraham's immediate family story. He was trying to do something that we are still living under the blessing of today. The gospel of salvation came through this family and through God's way and them trusting him and allowing him to lead them. Take a listen to what Paul says. This is Paul in the New Testament. This is what Paul says about Abraham in the story we've been looking at today. This is what he says about the impact of it uh, in, our, in our time. Romans 4 says, Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. For the scriptures tell us Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. Verse 23, and when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It wasn't just for his immediate family, his immediate life. It was recorded for our benefit too, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him. 
the one who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. He was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. So God had planned all along to bring Jesus through this line, through this way. That was his plan. And we today are still feeling that impact through faith, through the same thing that Abraham was invited to do, through faith, through putting our faith and trust in Jesus. He becomes our guide. He becomes the center of our lives, not just our individual lives, but as a family. And here's the way it works. When you make Jesus the center of your family, when you make Jesus your guide as your family, here's how it works. Everybody doesn't get what they want, okay? God doesn't, Abraham and Sarah didn't get everything they wanted, certainly not in their lifetime. But what happens is we all begin to want the same thing. That's the impact that Jesus makes in our families and our lives. Whether, and whether it's just you as a pioneer, you're the only one that's putting Jesus first. You're starting to be, uh, to be a pioneer for a new way that maybe it's only your grandkids they're gonna face. Or whether it's your whole family, when you begin to pursue Jesus together, what happens is we all don't get what we want, but we all begin to want the same thing because what happens is I don't just want what's best for me. I begin to look at my spouse and I want what's best for Carrie, my wife, because I want what Jesus wants for her. And when she looks at me, she doesn't just look at me as a means to her own end. She begins to want what Jesus wants for me. We look at our kids, we begin to want what Jesus wants for them. And so what happens is Jesus brings unity to families that have been divided. He, he brings us back together and he brings wholeness and healing under the banner of his name. We don't all get what we want, but we all begin to want the same thing in Jesus. A few years ago, I was given the opportunity to do my cousin's wedding as a pastor. So I went and actually they've been married, I think five years now. They just uh, announced that they're pregnant with their first child. But I remember this wedding going to do my cousin's wedding and my whole extended family was there and I did the wedding. It was great. And then we went to the reception and you have to understand my family, there's a ton of divorce, uh, lots of divorce, lots of brokenness and division in my like, you know, extended family. There's, there's been a lot of affairs. There's been a lot of issues that have happened. And so we're at the reception, for, and I just did the wedding for my cousin's wedding, and we're all there. And the DJ gets up, and he does the thing. You've been to weddings. You've seen this, right? The DJ says, all right, all the married couples out on the dance floor. And I'm just going, oh, great. Here, you know, I'm thinking about my family, and <laughs> this is going to be awkward. So Carrie and I get out there on the dance floor. All of us in my extended family who are married, we get out there, and we join the bride and groom on the dance floor. And Carrie and I are dancing. I'm an awesome dancer. This is how I dance right here. Um, and so uh, we're dancing out on the dance floor. And then the DJ begins to do the thing that they do, you know, and says, okay, if you've been married five years or less, go sit down. And I'm not kidding you, half the dance floor just goes and sits down because there's not very many people that have married that long in my family because there's been so much divorce, so much brokenness. They go and sit down. So it's just a few of us. Carrie and I are out there. We're, we're out there dancing. And then he says, okay. 10 years or less, you've been married, go sit down. Another big group of people. 15 years. If you've been married 20 years or less, go sit down. We, Carrie and I had to sit down at that point. And then I look, I'm, I'm standing at the back of the room and there is one couple left on the dance floor. 25 years, 30 years. The guy keeps going, 35 years, 40 years. It's my parents. I literally sat at the back of that room and watched as he counted down those times and I began to just weep in my family because I know what it took 
for them to be the last ones standing on the dance floor. I, when I was 12 years old, my parents were almost divorced. My dad was on the road with a job. He was gone all the time. And my mom was ready to leave. And at 12 years old, I knew it. I could sense it. And my dad would look back now and he would say, this was God at the time. He wouldn't have said that. But, but later he looks back now and he says, this was totally God that this happened. But he, he quit his job where he was traveling all the time and in kind of a move to try to save his family in a last ditch effort, he moved us to this town in Marion, Indiana, podunk little place, Northern Indiana. Uh, I'm going to be the manager of this credit union, he said, where I'll be home every night. And a friend has invited us to come to church, and we all gave our lives to Christ. And Christ, when I saw my parents standing out there and the, uh, being the last ones on the dance floor, I knew the reason that they're out there and nobody else in my family is out there because is because of Jesus. It's the only reason. Because Jesus became the Savior for our family. He became the center of our family. He became the pursuit of our lives. And both my parents, if they were standing here today, they would say, God moved us to that town. He put us in that church. He pursued us until we knew him. We had to say yes. We had to have faith. We had to put our faith and our trust in him. But he did that in our family. And I sat in the back of that room just, and I just wept and I said a silent prayer. I said, God, would you allow my kids one day to look up and see Carrie and I as the last people on the dance floor? Would you allow my kids? I, I, am, I am living I'm, I'm experiencing the shade and the fruit of a tree that my parents planted and watered because they turned their lives over to Christ. God, would you allow my kids to live under that same legacy? When Jesus becomes the center of our family, we don't all get what we want, but we all begin to want the same things. And God, maybe not in your, in your lifetime, maybe not right now in your immediate family, but he will bring healing. He will bring unity and it may be the best decision you make, not just for yourself, but it might be the best decision you make for your grandkids. As the, as the band comes back up, I want to I ask you uh, three questions. I thought about how to end this. Because, you know, I don't know your family. I don't know specifically what's going on. I don't know what, if you're in a time right now where you're going, man, I'm just so grateful. Or if you're in a season and you're in a time with your family where you're like, man, there's been so much division, so much brokenness. Maybe it's been handed to you upstream from decisions that were made and you're like, I don't even know what to do when we get to Thanksgiving. So I decided, maybe just end with three questions. Just allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you wherever you find yourself right now. First question is this. Have you ever caused division by taking a shortcut? In other words, is there anywhere you need to just begin by owning? You know what? I've made a decision. I, I took a shortcut here instead of letting Jesus guide me. I powered up. I, I went into force mode. I tried to solve the problem in my own way. Is there anywhere you just need to own that and go, man, I've caused this? There's power when we just say, yeah, I trust you. I, I, I need to just own kind of what I need to own. Is that you? Out of that, go ahead, the next question. Do you need to repent, ask forgiveness, or forgive anyone else? Maybe it's not your immediate shortcut that caused division, um, but are you committed to planting, watering, and tending a family tree by your actions today, by letting Jesus be your guide today, by offering forgiveness, by asking for forgiveness, by repenting and letting your children see that, that someday your grandkids will sit under the shade of that tree. They'll eat the fruit of that tree.
God wants to do something much bigger than just your immediate family. He wants to, he wants to begin a legacy through you. Is there anywhere you need to repent and ask forgiveness or forgive anyone? And then there's the last question. How do you need to let Jesus be your guide as a family? And that's an individual choice. But for some of us in this room, that's a, that's a family choice. How do you need to let Jesus be your guide? Is there anywhere in your family right now, any relationship, any situation where you need to take your hands off the wheel, take a step back and go, I don't know how to solve this one on my own. Jesus, I need you. The invitation from Jesus is come to me if you're weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He doesn't say work harder, fix everything that's messed up in your family. It's all on you. The pressure's on, get it done. He says, come to me. You can't do it in yourself. That's the whole point of these stories in the book of Genesis. We're supposed to read them and go, oh, wow. They couldn't do it either. It's because their story is pointed to one who is greater, who says, come to me. Let me be the center of your life. Let me be the center of your family. I will guide you. And so Jesus, this morning, that's what we invite you to do.